It is such a joy to watch. As I'm looking back here, I'm watching the, the excitement of the children dropping their money in that offering plate. That used to be back in the day when nobody had dollar bills. All they had was pocket change. You would hear it, clankety, 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 clank. But now, you know, a dollar's worth a penny, right? And so it's the same thing. But, I mean, it's still the same excitement, isn't it? I'm watching. And, and parents, let me encourage you. Thank you for beginning now at a young age to encourage your children. It's not about giving away money. It's about teaching us where our provision comes from. And if we teach our children now that everything that they have does not belong to them, that they have to possess, that they can release that because they know it's not theirs anyway. It's what God has given them. That's a wonderful lesson to teach. And it's a wonderful lesson for adults to remember. <laughs> Amen, adults? Right? When we, when we look at our paycheck and we think we had a lot of money and then we look at how much Uncle Sam takes and we say, where'd my money go? <laughs> it's not ours anyway. And we say, we've got to give a little bit back to the Lord. He's blessed us, and that's our act of worship. It's our act of worship. Amen. Well, turn with me to that first letter of Peter. We're still in this wonderful epistle. We're going to be in First and Second Peter several more weeks and months. Uh, I don't know how long the Lord will keep us here, how long it will take us to really dig out uh, some of those little nuggets that God has given us. But has this been a good sermon series for, for us all? Um, and, and Dalton, thank you. When Dalton was praying, uh, I could sense that he is remembering what God is teaching him as he remembers in his prayer little nuggets of what we talked about in these sermons. That we are living stones. That's what we talked about last week. Peter was showing us as the church that we are living stones that God is shaping. We're not smooth like you would pull out of the river. It, we, are, we are rough around the edges and God, through His love and mercy, is shaping us it may be painful with a little bit of a chisel <laughs> shaping us into the masterpiece he wants us to be to fit exactly in the church that he's building. That's an amazing idea, isn't it? That's a truth. But let's, if you will, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. We'll read verses 9 through 12 this morning. God speaking through His servant Peter under inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for these wonderful words of encouragement, these words of guidance, these words of inspiration. Father, I pray that this morning as we just listen to you speak in these words, Father, that you would come into this room and settle our spirits. Dear God, that you would cause us to listen attentively. 
that we would not only listen to the words spoken, but also listen to those words from your spirit into our spirit that are not verbally audible. God, we want to serve you well. And I pray, God, that you would remind us of what your word teaches us, that we are chosen by you not to be arrogant, not to be uh, better than anyone else, but you have set aside your church to be different than the world. And there's a reason for that. Not that we should be judgmental, but that we are to be a light. And in that may come judgment, but it is done in a way that is gracious and merciful and loving. But that we are so different from the world around us in the mercy and grace that you give us that people see that there is something unusual. Teach us, God, what that is. Teach us, God, how to honor you in that life and in that status that you've chosen us to be in. Wow. Humble us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. How many people here have ever been outside of the United States? Several of us. How many people have been outside of the South? Still in the United States, but you go somewhere else. Is it a different world outside of Tennessee? Absolutely. Yeah. When you go anywhere outside of the south or southeast, I mean, that's the beauty of our country. You can have a lot of different countries and a lot of different cultures and a lot of different people and a lot of different ways of doing things, right? Uh, I had the privilege of uh, being in Kingsport, Tennessee, Friday and Saturday, uh, visiting with family. And, you know, Friday was my birthday. So was my brother's, my twin. So I crashed his birthday party Friday night. And uh, whenever I go to Kingsport, then I always try to do something with my dad. My dad wants, wanted to take us out for breakfast Saturday morning. So we went to a little place called the Red uh, Rooster Rob's was the name of the restaurant. And this, this, this little restaurant had Ronda seal of approval. Everything was all natural, all organic. It was great. Just a little country restaurant, but nothing came from the, the refrigerator or the freezer. It was all fresh. And we were at, I had biscuits and gravy yesterday morning. I mean real, I mean the biscuits and gravy, the gravy that, that you know you mix it, that you make in the cast iron skillet with the bacon drippings, you know, and it's real thick. Didn't come from a pouch or a mix. It was like the real deal. It's my birthday weekend, I'm allowed, right? And I was sitting there and I was reminiscing about this biscuits and gravy, and I was telling my dad, I said, I told him a story of when I was in New Hampshire once. Now this is this is an example of how things are so different from the South. And up in New England. As I much I love our, our northern brothers and sisters, it's different. This was in 2005. I was in New Hampshire. And we had just come back from being overseas in Central Asia. I had just come back from Tajikistan. We'd been there for a month. Okay? And so we came back to New Hampshire and the group I was with, we were out, we were kind of debriefing, getting back into the time zone and getting back into the American culture and kind of debriefing the whole mission together as a group. And, and this camp, that we were at, the, the chef there who met us before we left, greeted us when we came back, and he said, you've been gone for a month. Is there a special American food that you really want for breakfast tomorrow? What can I do for you? Every one of us was from the southeast, and here we are in New England, and every one of us said, we'd love to have biscuits and gravy for breakfast. And so this chef, he was so, I mean, he was so humble. He didn't, he said, absolutely, I've never done that, but I'll do my best. And you know what? He had real biscuits made with buttermilk and real gravy made with milk and flour and grease for breakfast. Now, there were other 
campers and other families there at the campground that week. This was a Christian resort place, and they were there doing, doing like a work weekend. And these were New Englanders, and they come in for breakfast that morning, and their face, when they saw biscuits and gravy out for them, was like shock. What in the world is this? And I had to teach them how to eat biscuits and gravy. They would like take their biscuit and they would dip it in the bowl of gravy. Now, everybody in this room was just grinning and smiling because we know how do you eat biscuits and gravy? You gotta like take that biscuit, you gotta open it up face up on the plate, and you gotta drown it, right? With the gravy. That's how you eat biscuits and gravy. But we are so different, aren't we? Y'all are grinning because you know I'm right, right? Whenever you got people to come together that are from different places and different experiences, you're going to come together and you're going to recognize how different we are whenever you come together like that. And a lot of times the differences are centered around food. A lot of times the differences are centered around our, our language. I remember when I was 18 years old and I went into the military in 1986. I didn't realize how different I talked until... Those people in the military told me how different I talked. And I just looked at them and I said, well, I don't understand what you're saying either. I think you're the one talking funny. Right? Y- y- y'all to get what we're saying? There's differences when people come together. Now, Peter here in, in the second chapter of the first letter, this theme throughout this whole letter to the church is reminding the church, number one, you are set aside as different people from the world. You have been called by God through His mercy and grace. He has, remember chapter 1 verse 3, it is God who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ and His resurrection. We are different. And Peter is reminding the church here in their exile, they are in chapter 1 verse 1, he uses the the imagery here, he is writing to those elect exiles or some translations, those elect sojourners in the faith, you are going to be in foreign lands, you are going to be in different places and you are going to look different, you are going to act different and all of your neighbors in the new communities you find yourself exiled to are going to see you as different. And this is the theme here that Peter is emphasizing in the text that we're looking at today, right? Verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, But you are a chosen race. Some translations say you are a chosen generation. Does anybody have that in their translation? You are a chosen race or you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, we could break this down into several different sections to understand exactly what this calling as God's people looks like. He's reminding us as Christians, as the church, number one, this constant theme of the elect. You are chosen by God. He has saved you, but you are a chosen race, a chosen generation. Now, what kind of language does this uh, uh, sound like? In the, in the book of Exodus, it is God who has called out the nation of Israel. He has called them to be a chosen people, a separate people, to be a light amongst the surrounding Gentile nations. In the, in, in the, in the nations of men, God has chosen a select nation to be called out 
to be saved from slavery under Egypt and to be that light to the world that eventually the salvation of Jesus Christ would come through. That's how God set up this whole understanding and this whole plan of salvation. He, looking into the nations of the men of the world that God has allowed to create, to settle and be, He looked and He called out a special group of people, the descendants of Abraham, to be a chosen people. This is the language of the Old Testament. This is the same language that Peter borrows and uses to explain and describe to the church the exact same setting. You as the church, you belong to Christ. And in belonging to Christ, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen generation. You are different. We are a continuation of God's people just as God called out the nation of Israel through the fulfillment of Christ and the salvation that God intended to bring through Jesus Christ's blood, those who are now under the blood of Christ are continuing that same idea of a chosen generation, a chosen people. You are now God's special ones. You see the, see the connection here? And so Peter is reminding the church, you are the chosen race. And the word here in chosen race is uh, eklekton, which we get the word elect from, which generally means you are not a people established under your own power. You have been chosen by God. He is elected to call you out to be his own. That's an idea that you can't get away from in Scripture. It's there. Not just upon the church, but even upon the nation of Israel. God has called them to be his own. Now in this as well, in verse 9, he says, Because you are a chosen generation, a chosen race, please do not misinterpret or confuse the language here in verse 9 of racial divide. Because nowhere in Scripture does God say that his church is to be only one particular race of people the way we would understand the word race. That implies a group of people, a generation of people under the blood of Christ. Now, who can be under the blood of Christ? I mean, everybody can be under the blood of Christ. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your language is. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care your personality. I don't care from where you're at. God has called all of the world, all of his peoples, all human beings to salvation in the blood of Christ. Now, not everyone will be. And that's the, that's the rub here in this. But you are a chosen race, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, right? If we look back in Exodus chapter 29, if you want to turn there with me, Exodus chapter 29 is where this language is borrowed from. A royal priesthood. The book of Exodus is that wonderful Old Testament uh, work that recounts God's work among the nation of Israel, calling out the children of Abraham into a new nation, taking them from from slavery in Egypt through an exodus to the promised land, right? And if we look in Exodus chapter 29, I'm going to begin in uh, verse 41. I'm sorry, verse uh, 42. Verse 42. Listen to this. 
This is, if you look at the entire chapter of Exodus 29, you will see that it is, that God, through, uh, the law of Moses, is consecrating the priest here, establishing the order of the priesthood and exactly what that looks like. But looking in chapter 29, verse 42, let's begin reading. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be a sancti- it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Notice this. This language here in Exodus of he is establishing a select group of people, even amongst the nation of Israel, to be his royal priesthood. That whenever they perform the rites of ritual and sacrifice, God will come to that place and his glory will be shown. So that all of the people who gather there They shall know that God is their God. They shall know and be reminded of where they've come from out of slavery into the land of Egypt and that God will dwell with them and be their Lord. You see that? Same language here. Peter is using the same language in 1 Peter chapter 2. I have chosen you to be a generation of my making. I have chosen you to be my people, a royal priesthood, so that when people see you in the church, they see Christ in the church. They see Christ in each individual, each individual family, each individual congregation. When the world sees Christ in you, then you will actually serve as a priesthood for me. Ponder that. Have you all ever pondered that reality of of your salvation, that God is using you as he would use a priest to proclaim his glory to those around you? Now, that's scary, isn't it? Let's just be honest with ourselves. Does that scare you to death to think that God is holding you accountable as a priest? Ponder that. Now, clearly this language here in in, in 1 Peter is not advocating that we are all going to be priest-like like the priests of, of the Catholic Church or even of the old uh, Israel tradition of the Jewish faith. That's not, we are not to like burn sacrifices and forgive people's sins. That's not what we're talking about. The priest, the role of the priest is to glorify God, to be his representative to the people. And when he's leading the people, God's glory comes down and people see God's glory through what the priest is doing. Now, now if you really ponder that in our Christian lives, how does that affect how we live our lives as Christians? Do people see God's glory through your words and through your actions, or do they see somebody else? That's the role of the priest. The role of the priest is to reflect God's glory. And who is God's glory? Jesus Christ. And if we are under the blood of Christ, we are reflecting God's glory through His plan of salvation. You see that? Now, the next time that you're out in in the, the, the checkout line at Walmart or Kroger and it's taking too long, remember that when your blood starts to boil. If you're at work and somebody has really, really made you mad, Ponder that reality from God's Word 
wait a minute, I'm God's priest here. How would a priest, I'm God's representative, I'm representing Christ here. Wait a minute, would Christ get angry at them? We're priests here. That's what it means. The, the priesthood of the believers, this doctrine of Scripture, that we as the church, as individual Christians, as families in the blood of Christ, we are the priesthood of the believers. No longer do the priests have to make sacrifices for the atonement of our sins. Christ has completed that part. But the role of the priest as God's representative, as God's glory through us, that is still very much relevant. And Peter's reminding the church here of that. You see that? You are a chosen race, a generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Same language here. The church, we as God's people, we are just as seen just as holy in God's eyes as the nation of Israel. We are a holy nation. And, and that word there, nation, generally means just a gathering of people. A, you know, the genealogy of nations. A people for His own possession. Another translation, another way to understand this, a people for His own possession could be a people, a peculiar people in Christ. You ever heard that term about Christians? That we are a peculiar people? That's an interesting terminology that I think is, is very relevant and it comes from exactly what Peter's writing here. We are a peculiar people. If you think about it, as Christians, do you ever feel like you're an alien in your own community? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of talk in our country right now about illegal aliens coming into our country. But now think about this, folks. As Christians, we are aliens in the world. We are. So we have to remember that whenever we want to condemn someone because they are not from the United States, yes, I fully, fully, fully agree that if you want to come to the United States, you need to come through the port of entry. If you come across the Rio Grande, if you come across in the back end, of, in, in, the, in the trunk of a car, if you are snuck in, you are doing something illegal and you need to be held accountable for that. But we have to also remember, folks, as Christians, we are aliens in this world. Amen? Well, Peter's reminding these Christians, because what's the context here of the letters from Peter to the church? They are exiles. That's what he says in the very first verse. You are elect exiles. You are sojourners in the world. You have been uprooted from your homeland. You are cast out as, as unwanted people. And God says, you know what? That's okay. That's, that's how, that's how it's going to be. I am calling you out to be different. And the world's not going to understand. You're going to be aliens to them. But in that process, you are peculiar people of my own possession. Because the church belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, here's the next part of verse 9 I think is very relevant. Why, why does Peter describe us this way? Why is God... Thinking of his church in this manner, I mean, what, what what is the purpose for being set aside to be these resident aliens, these chosen people of God, these unusual people who live amongst the world? Why does God do this? Is it for our suffering and to keep us humble? I mean, I think that's a byproduct. That's not the reason. 
the cause for this, the reason God allows this to happen, the reason God wants this to happen, at the latter half of verse 9 he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason that we are seen this way as unique people, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession as peculiar to the world, the reason for that is so that we will proclaim God's glory. We will proclaim his excellencies to those who are still in the darkness because we ourselves have been called out of darkness. Amen? If you are under the blood of Christ, was there a time when you were not? Yes. Some of us in this room may still be in that place of darkness and we are not under the blood of Christ. And if that's the case, we do not fit into this description in verse 9 as God's chosen people, a royal priesthood. A peculiar. We are not in that because we're still in the darkness. But if we have been called out of that, remember? At the, at the very beginning of First uh, Peter chapter 2, he talks to those who are like newborn infants, if indeed they have tasted that the Lord is good. Some people have never tasted the goodness of God and they're still in that darkness and they've lied to themselves and they've lied to the world and they say, I'm a Christian, but they're not. If that's the case, there's no glory of God coming through them. Christ will not be proclaimed through them. But those who are genuinely redeemed, those who have genuinely tasted the goodness of God, those who have genuinely been changed through Christ's redemption, we are set aside to proclaim God's glory. Wow. Now that'll humble you, won't it? How many times do we talk to non-believers about this responsibility for the faith? How many times does somebody who has questions about Christianity do we actually go into this aspect of the life of the Christian? We don't want to scare them off, so we don't tell them the realities of, you know what, you're going to be looked at as weird. Oh, just come to Jesus and everything's going to be happy and glorious. And we give them a sales pitch and make it all look sweet and cotton candy. And it is a glorious experience. It is a sweet, wonderful time that God reaches in and changes us. But the result of that is never as harmonious and, 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 and romantic as we make it out to be, does it? We have been set aside for a reason. God is going to use us to proclaim His glory. Verse 10. He reminds them of their state. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Right? If we've, ever, if we've been a Christian for a while, have we forgotten that there was a time where we were not? That can easily be... We can become so complacent in the fact that we are in the blood of Christ and that we are called by God to be His people, that we forget there was a time when we weren't. It's good to be reminded of that, isn't it? It's good to be reminded, wait a minute now, there was a time where you were not under God's uh, forgiving mercy and grace. You need to be reminded of that from time to time. What does that do when when you're reminded of that point of transformation from not being saved to now being saved? Not being under Christ. And now being under Christ. It's good to be reminded of that from time to time. Humbling. It keeps us focused on our faith of where our salvation comes from. Our salvation is not of our own doing. Our salvation is of what Christ has done. We've got to be reminded of that. 
you know, I, just, I went back to my hometown Friday night and yesterday, and we came back. It was a short trip there and back seeing family and all. And it was good for me to go back and be reminded of where I came from. Kingsport, Tennessee is my hometown where I grew up, but you know what? I'm not there anymore, and I see, whenever I go back there, it's always good to go back home to see family. It's also good to go back and see where I grew up and remind, wait a minute, I did that? I used to hang out here? Why did I do that? You know, when you're young and dumb, you just do stuff, right? It's good to be reminded of that from time to time to say, boy, I've come a long way, <laughs> right? I've really come a long way from what I used to do when I was 16 and 15 and all that stuff. So that's why it's kind of good to go back home every now and then. Same thing for the Christian. It's good for us to go back home from time to time to be reminded by the servant Peter here that once we were not God's people. But now you are. That's also good to be reminded, like if we have a job, is it, is it good to be reminded from time to time there was a point where we did not have a job? How does that change your attitude about the job that you hate? Oh, wait a minute. There was a time where I didn't have a job. Hmm, this is better. <laughs> I know it may be rough. I know I may hate the boss. I may hate the people I work with. I may hate what I have to do. But you know what? It's better than not having a job. Amen? It's good to be shown to be grateful from time to time. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, he says in verse 10. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's important. Because, you know, when we are saved through the blood of Christ, we are, we, we receive God's grace in salvation, but we receive God's mercy in that He pulled us out of our dark, deep pit of despair. What is grace? Grace is that unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, but God loved us and saved us anyway. That's grace. Men, I always remind you, you've heard me say this before from this pulpit, men. Remember, why is it that we have gracious wives? It's because we don't deserve them. And they look at us and they say, I'm going to love him anyway. That's, gra- that's a gracious wife, isn't it? But what does it mean to have mercy? So you've got to understand the difference between these two important terms. Mercy implies not salvation, but mercy implies the attitude of compassion for someone who is in times of trouble. Grace is that attitude of love that we do not deserve, but mercy is that act of compassion in times of struggle and times of turmoil. That's what mercy is. I have mercy on you, God says. He said, and, and, and Peter reminds us here in verse 10, as Christians, as God's chosen people, as His church, once you, di- you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Which implies there's, when we were not under God's mercy, when we had not received His mercy, we were in a dark, dreary place. Separated from God. Drowning in our own sin. But even in that hateful, dark-filled place, God had mercy and compassion on us to bring us out of it. To give us, to set us not in our darkness, but in a new place of light. Not in an old place of misery, but in a new place of light and glory. You see the point? 
It's good to be reminded as Christians, there was a time when we were not Christians. But now we are. And if you're here in this room and you've not received the goodness of God, if you've not tasted His goodness of salvation, you have not received God's mercy yet. But you could be under God's mercy in that, in that He is allowing you to hear the truth of the gospel. And then there's even a further place to go. As God continues to draw you and, and soften your heart to understand and to truly believe that Jesus has completed all that is necessary for salvation. And when we trust Jesus Christ in that, at that point is when the Holy Spirit is working in us and transforming us into somebody new. Then we are under God's mercy. That's amazing. Why is it that God gives us His mercy? Why is it through God's compassion that He reaches down and grabs us out of our dark pit? It's because God does not wish to see us separated from Him. That's where the grace comes in. The mercy causes God to pour out grace on us because He does not want to see us separated from Him. That's amazing. And Peter's reminding the church, you were under that kind of love. Because one time you were not, now you are. Now let's look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, here he's reminding again that same, he's repeating that same theme and reminding them that what he did when he started the letter. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Reminding them of their position. You are under the blood of Christ. You are a chosen nation. You are a royal priesthood. A people called out by God for His own. But as you are sojourning as exiles, be reminded to abstain from the passions of the flesh like the non-believers and non-Christians around you do. Here is in verse 11 and 12, I think it's very important for us as Christians to kind of understand how do we, how do we live and how do we think in this world that surrounds us, right? Now, for our culture, right, our culture is consumed and directed by media and entertainment. Let's just make it clear. When we talk about our culture, every single time the discussions of our culture are going to go back to the arts and the creativity that control us and direct us and influence us. Now, this is not a slam against media. It's not a slam against movies or against television or against Internet. We can't because it's just so much a part of our world. To rail against media is just as ludicrous as to rail against the, the, the car. And if you remember, about 120 years ago when the first automobiles were created, there were a lot of people saying, that's of the devil. Look back in history, it's there. When electricity came into being and, we, and, and, people, and, and Alexander Graham Bell was wanting to run electri- electrical lines throughout the streets of New York City and to put on the first street lights, one of the arguments against that was if you run those electrical lines, we're all going to get cancer and our brain's going to be fried because of the electrons out in the air. What do we think about electricity now? We can't even have church if the, if the power's out. Do you realize that? You have the power's out. We got to cancel church now. If the cars don't run, nobody can get to church, and we just love that now. So same thing with entertainment and movies. Now there's there's a caution there. We can't just embrace the media of of movies and TV and internet just willy nilly. But we also have to acknowledge it's part of our world. 
How would a Christian navigate the world this way based on this text? That's what we've got to think about. Is Peter telling the church here, as the royal priesthood, as the chosen race, that you are to be different in the world? Yes. But he also acknowledges that in your exile, verse 11, you do abstain from those passions which wage war against you. But look in verse 12. But you must keep your conduct, what, among the Gentiles? Honorable. You must keep your conduct amongst the foreigners around you as honorable. Because you, I mean, you're the foreigners here. You're the guests in their place. Uh, you're, you're the guest in their community. They are Gentiles. You're living amongst them. But you're a called out people there. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Is Peter here telling the church to be judgmental and condemning of the Gentiles of which they live amongst? No. You are to keep your life honorable. You're to keep your actions honorable. Yes. But the reason that you live this way is at the latter part of verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, so that when the the Gentiles speak evil against you as a Christian, they have nothing to support their claim. But listen here, folks, if we are Christians amongst a Gentile pagan world and we act like them, when they bring charges against us, they have reason to do so. Now, the, 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 the implication here of Gentiles, clearly he's using the same imagery here of God calling out the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus to live amongst the Gentiles. There's a clear difference here between the church and those who are not the church. Our brothers and sisters uh, in the church of India, I love how they they apply this idea as they talk about the Christians in India and those who are not. The the churches in, in, in India will actually say, if you are a Christian, you are saved by the blood of Christ, you are in the church and you're God's people. But if you're not, you're a Gentile. They'll call their neighbor a Gentile. They'll call their brother and sister in the church a brother and sister. I love that. They actually apply this where they live. We are Christians in the midst of a Hindu culture that is aggressive toward us, but we are different. And they talk about the Gentiles. But then they celebrate when a Gentile comes to faith and joins the church. Then they're no longer a Gentile. Now they're a brother and sister. That's in the Church of India. That's a wonderful idea. I think we should start employing some of that. Now, I think it'd be weird if we went out into the streets of all good and called everybody a Gentile. You're just a Gentile. They'd look at us like, what in the world are you talking about? That's not a very honorable way to apply this. But I think we can think of it this way, right? I think we can think of it this way. That's what Peter's encouraging us here. Christians are not to be so foreign and so different. Yeah, we, now, we are to be radically different than the world. We are not to think like the world. We're not to act like the world. We're not to be like the world. We're not to embrace with the worldly ways of doing things. Now, listen, when it comes to... Let me go back to movies and media and stuff. As Christians, be, be discerning about what you consume. Okay? Be discerning, parents, of what you allow your children to see and hear in your home. Trust me, it matters. 
Be discerning about what you as an adult consume in the media. It matters because that affects your thinking. It affects your attitudes. It affects the way you are a Christian or not. But then we don't turn right around and condemn everybody because they're not like us. How can, why should we condemn somebody for not being a Christian when they're not a Christian? Of course they're not going to be like us. They're not a Christian. What do you expect? They're going to act that way. They're going to think that way. Now they're going to try to influence you. And that's when, that's when the boldness of Christ can come forward in an honorable attitude of mercy. If, Christ, if God has shown us mercy, we can show the Gentiles mercy. If God has shown us mercy, we can show our neighbors who are not Christians mercy. Amen? That's the point. I really, I really am bothered when I, I see evangelical Christians get and act just like the world. And they get angry and they demand their rights and they gotta go back and do this and, and, and they claim victimhood because they're not being allowed to be a Christian. Well, guess what? Nobody in the New Testament or the Old Testament who were God's people had the same rights. It's not biblical. We do not have the rights of the world. Now, in the United States of America, we were established with the rights of liberty of religion. We do have religious liberty as a tenet of our nation. I agree with that. But we as Christians cannot claim foul when those liberties are stamped upon. It's just the way the world works. It's going to happen. And I think our country and our culture is quickly going to the point. It's already there, but it's going to get worse, folks. We are now in a season of human history where we are going to face persecution like the early church did. So we as Christians must prepare now for when that comes in a way that we don't like, it's coming. Do we stand up and, and take up arms and fight? I don't know. I hope we don't. Or do we act like Christians even in the midst of persecution and attack you know, God has shown me mercy. I'm going to show you mercy. That right there will speak volumes much more than a gun. That will speak more volumes than going and claiming that we don't have our rights anymore. Yeah, now should we stand up for religious liberty? Yes. But don't get so shocked when liberty and religious freedom is attacked. It's the way it's always been. God's people are not welcome in the world. Ponder that for a minute. Why did God design and think a plan of salvation that would result in the world not welcoming it? It's because He knew how radically different His glory was. It didn't matter what God planned. It didn't matter what God put into place. It didn't matter what He chose to be the path to salvation. The world was going to reject it. It doesn't matter what He did. The world's going to reject everything that God wants and does. So folks, it's, it's important for us to be reminded. We, we're not the world. We are so radically different. And what makes us different, right? Do you remember the uh, passage of our responsive reading this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter in his second letter to the churches is going to actually flesh this out even more. 
He says in verse 5 of 2 Peter chapter 1, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brother affect, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. That affection and love is so radically different from the Gentile world. When that is employed, that will speak more volumes than anything else. Amen. And what does he say, uh, continuing in verse 8 of 2 Peter chapter 1? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If we forget where we've come from, if we forget that we were once sinners, we're going to begin to act like the world and be sinners. We're to be different. Now notice in verse 10 here of 2 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. What qualities do we practice? That we supplement our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, etc., etc., to godliness. If we practice godliness that is not legalistic and fundamental and judgmental, then we are actually more godly. But we still have to be discerning and say no to things that are of the world. Amen? So that's what Peter's encouraging here. 